0: Hi, I'm Anna Burt, and I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benita. I'm Trudy's daughter. Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums, and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief.
1: The mothership, the motherload. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance
0: and scope of The The Mother of All losses. Losses.
1: I would say happy new year Uh, but let's just say it's a new year. How are you and how is your grief today?
0: It is a new year. I, I feel mad. I feel absolutely mad. I just can't it just sweat well basically I was ill over the whole of Christmas um for two and a half weeks um and in bed pretty much the whole time I got out of bed like on Christmas day and so I feel like I haven't had a holiday and I'm <laughs> back at work tomorrow and all my projects are starting back up I'm not prepared I feel really overwhelmed um and yes anxious um <laughs> so it's not I don't feel particularly happy I'll be fine in like a week but it's just like I don't know. It's like, oh, God, yeah, I've got to make money again.
1: hmm hmm The freelancers way.
0: Yeah, it's awful. Um, but, I mean, it's not awful. I love it, and I will love it again. I'll love it again in about a week. But currently I just feel really overwhelmed, really inadequate, and... Um, just like worried which is really stupid it's also tax coming up so really I'm not I'm I'm like a proper burden over um over this really but next time we record I'm going to be back on top but um yeah I feel I feel I feel bad and I think that maybe that's kind of okay to say in the new year because everyone's like woohoo positive moving forward stuff like that but um I do. I feel like I haven't had a break. I feel like my body is um, struggling. Um, I'm really tired all the time. I'm now terrified. I did get COVID as well. I'm now terrified that I've got long COVID. Um, (laughs) I feel really floppy. I went to the gym for the first time, which as our listeners will know it's like one of my biggest joys in life and I was so weak <laughs> I was literally so weak and I was like oh my gosh I'm having to start again here so um I feel like everything feels like a lot but it will be fine and I need to just I think I always disappoint myself because I did relax over Christmas because I didn't have a choice I was just lying in bed watching telly um and so I was all like ah I'm relaxed I'm gonna be fine when I go back to work and it's like the absolute opposite so I'm struggling um um, and, and yeah, I just, I just am. My grandma now has COVID, which I'm obviously worried about. She's in her home. She's still having a horrible time. Everything's just like a bit, it's a bit crap, really. Um, she might be okay. She might not be okay. I don't know. Obviously I can't see her now. Um, that, that all got quite complicated over Christmas as well. So it's just like a lot. I, again, don't feel like I've had much respite. <laughs>
1: That's, that is a lot. That's the definition of a lot. And I think uh, January Positivity people can go do one. A lot. It's it's horrible. Like nothing actually changes. And I go by Chinese New Year in February anyway, because the moon does something different, apparently. I don't know. Anyway. um, So I think you can just, (laughs) everyone can give themselves permission to make New Year in February, because that is too much. And also, I know exactly that, when you're ill and you think oh well I'm quote-unquote doing nothing I must be relaxing you're not you're (laughs) fighting an infection (laughs) like you're you're immobilized I'm sorry love I
0: I actually feel much better now I've said it I feel like I just needed to say that out loud because obviously I haven't seen any of my friends either because I haven't been able to so now I'm like I feel like I've said it and now I'm okay um and my grief my grief is it's, you know, Christmas is, you know, like we said before, Christmas is a funny time and, but also, you know, in many ways I'm liberated by not having the kind of weird traditions and burdens that people seem to kind of moan about on the internet. But similarly, I don't have the traditions and things that people moan about on the internet and sometimes maybe, I will. excuse me, so <coughs> it's a double-edged sword, but ultimately... My grief is no better or no worse than usual, but my misery is high, which normally just means that I'm generally, generally miserable rather than just grieving. Um, how are you? How are you? How was your Christmas? Please tell me it was better than mine. Uh,
1: yeah, it was, but I don't <laughs> okay. think that's a very high bar to clear. It sounds like you've had a really <laughs> shit <said>. time. <laughs> I did, my choice occasionally, but I wasn't in bed because I had no other option. Um, Christmas flew by and it was nice and it was... Um, I think what you said there in terms of not having the traditions and the double-edged sword, I totally get because I think ever since Trude's died, I've been separating my attachment to Christmas to get by Um, which it's kind of like in the face of rejection going well I didn't want it anyway which isn't necessarily true but it can be a step in getting some much needed distance so I feel really lucky in that respect because it was nice but it also I could kind of break it down into the elements of like Well, I'm with David and we're seeing family and we're having nice food. Yeah, we happen to be watching Muppets Christmas Carol, but it managed to kind of push away the kind of feeling of it. I've got my birthday soon. So I think that's more the kind of roundabout this time sort of feeling because New Year passed without too much kind of nothing eventful. And I was really bracing myself for feeling the first year anniversary of finding out my friend Jules passed away and it was there, but I didn't feel it as keenly as I maybe anticipated. But then I think I just expect myself to be completely distraught. And then if it doesn't match up to that, I'm like, oh, well it's, it's okay. Whereas I think it was still there. I think because I'm still in a state of complete shock and denial about Jules dying. But my birthday is a tricky one because obviously you can't have a birthday without being born, and you can't be born without a mum, and that's what I've not got. So I think my birthday's much more. But then once, once, once we're through that, we're clear of the fucking winter obstacle
0: until September. Do you know what I mean? You've got a few months off until until your other bad month. Yeah, I feel that completely. Feel that. And how was your first sober at Christmas in the year? It
1: was great, thanks. I think I was really fortunate in that uh, I was a Christmas event where no one else was drinking and uh New Year's was just in at home so I didn't have any like direct challenges (laughs) to my sobriety Christmas day was hectic with little people but in a kind of beautiful way because I did get to all right brace yourselves experience Christmas through the eyes of a child again but also (laughs) felt completely fucking knackered Thing, yeah, I bet. And was like, no, thank you. Oh, God. And there was a little moment where it crept in and I was like, fuck me. Like, Trude's really made sure I had lovely Christmases. So that was sad. But at the same time, oh, there's a phrase that is not mine, but I borrow a lot, which is, I don't always like how I feel, but I like being sober. Which is why I'm particularly excited about today's guest, Anna. <laughs> Who have we got? Who have we got? We have... I mean, it's more threat, but we'll start with the triple threat uh, and and uh, go from there. We have author, editor and publisher, Lisa Edwards. Lisa, how are you and how
2: is your grief today, please? Well, hello. Thank you very much for inviting me on this podcast. How is my grief today? Well, I think mine is um, not as um immediate because I lost my mother well I think uh it's 22 years ago now and um 12 years before that my father but we're talking about mothers today um and so I always describe my grief as it's almost like a sort of low low-lying water table that rises every now and again but I never know really when it's going to rise um Christmas i've just got used to particularly post-marriage um being solo usually in another country where I can ignore it although you can never quite get away from Christmas or the solo the highlighting of your solo status at Christmas so um but I, i've managed to get away and this is the first year i'd say that i felt okay about soloness I went to a, a lovely family, Um, a a couple with their um, 11 year old son, a dog and a cat, their one set of parents. And it was like a proper cozy family Christmas day, but I was really happy to come back to my flat as well. And of course I remember Christmas's past. And I think I've, I've, I'm 54 now. And I've just got to the stage where I've almost like laid to rest. The, the Christmas angst. And now I'm sort of remembering the, you know, the, the fantastic seventies and eighties Christmases that we had um, and before it, 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 things went downhill after my dad died at 10. Um, so the low water table reappears at times like this. So part of my soloness is doing volunteering. So I've done, I've been doing the vaccine, center and I would say the grief has kind of shown itself every now and again I see a little old lady who just looks or it's just got a kind of way about her that makes me think oh that's my mum this is someone's mum and she's come on her own as my mum might have done and you know she might need a wheelchair or some help getting in and I'm Sometimes my breath is taken away, standing behind them, just going, oh, my God, it's my mum. The flattened head where they've been sitting with their head against a chair or a bed, you know, it's those, it's those little triggers, really. So it's not so much the Christmas thing, it's, it's doing that that's kind of made the water table come up and down.
1: I love the water table analogy. We use water an awful lot here at the Mother of All Losses HQ, um, as analogy. And, uh, can I ask, uh, Lisa, um, in terms of, can I ask you what number sober Christmas this one was for you? Um,
2: I'm going to be three years sober on January the 10th. So, um, yeah, it's been a really, I think being sober has helped me cope with the grief because I would, I, I had one Christmas on my own, fully on my own. I wasn't going to Friends until the evening, and I did a full-on wallow one year. Um, I did, I got the, I was drinking Prosecco. Somebody bought me a really sad movie, or I thought it was sad anyway, it was before sunrise. I was so romantic, but I was post-marriage, wallowing, nobody wants me, nobody loves me, I'm on my own, and I almost, its like self-harm, I brought it on, I managed to do the first Christmas Day morning, I went for a run, it was sunny, I had smoked salmon and scrambled eggs, and I thought, oh, I opened my presents, got this DVD, put that movie on, thought, is it too early to have the Prosecco? <laughs> no, um, I had the Prosecco, and to be honest, by about two o'clock, I was on the phone to the Samaritans um, to a very, very lovely Irishman in Donegal whose dog was barking in the background. I'll never forget how lovely he was. I felt stupid, you know, the, the classic kind of 40-something woman, um, you know, crying over her Prosecco, calling the Samaritans. You know, it wasn't, I had had a, years before a, a suicide attempt, but it, that was that was for something else but I wasn't going to do that I just really wanted to talk to someone and he he sort of did that job so I have the memory of that awful Christmas day uh, which I brought on myself I fully brought on myself Um, and I feel quite peaceful in a sober way now that I know I know if I started drinking again I might go there again um, but I feel just much more like to use the water analogy the you know the calm seas I went for a walk by the sea I go every day and I happily went to my friend's house for dinner and games and watching tv and happily came back again and I didn't go out on New Year's Eve either um, because really it just seemed I think I loved New Year's Eve because it was a an, a an evening of enabled massive drinking Um, take that away and I was like, well, what am I doing it for, (laughs) really? So, yeah. And the lockdown COVID has kind of played into all that. I'm fine with it all because I don't feel the need. I don't miss the pub. I don't miss the bars. Well, not most of the time, anyway. Um, Every now and again, I'll get a little kind of like, oh, I could just, you know, knock back a glass of champers, which, of course, would be a bottle. It's never a glass. (laughs)
0: Lisa, that was thank you for being so honest and war it's um it's amazing really. And I mean, congratulations three years is a huge achievement um, and it's just wonderful. I've like, it's been a real joy to me to see Emily so kind of galvanized by the experience of getting sober and like definitely what it's done for her and I'm, I'm really looking forward to asking you both about sobriety and grief because it's something that really really interests me the way that we drink when we grieve so I'm going to move on to that in a minute but firstly Lisa I'd love you to introduce your mum to us and tell us how she lived
2: Okay, she is. Um, she was Elizabeth Pamela Mary Edwards, though I like to sort of give her a title when I when I talk about her. her she was sort of known generally as Pamela, but um, Elizabeth Pamela Mary is just something that always um, springs to mind, and all of the, the female children in the family have got a version of Elizabeth in their name, and mine, um, mine's Lisa. Um, she was um, born in 1928 and um, she she's I'm from North Wales and she was in North Wales and it's only in recent years having done ancestry and DNA testing that I've realized that she was half Irish and a very common scenario of Irish people coming over into Liverpool um, to escape the the famine really coming into Liverpool and then migrating into North Wales and marrying Welsh people. And so it's so obvious now, big um, Irish family, lots of children, Catholics. um, And, and, you know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but with a twinkle in her eye, really. And um, one of the things that I remember about her is how much she spoke about her um, Nana Poland, her... And I now realise Irish um, grandmother, my great-grandmother, and how she lived by all her sayings, and I'll probably come out with them during the course of this conversation, but I still say them now. And um, she, one of the phrases she used to say was, there's always something you can do that someone else can't. And they were always phrases like that that just made you feel a bit better because... I think my mother, although sort of ordinary family setting, North Wales, big family, um, you know, going to mass every week. um, And my mum was very good at schoolwork, you know, a good schoolgirl. But I I think she had uh, she was very extraordinary actually. And um, it always amazes me that she was sort of known as the plain one in her family. She was one of um, three very beautiful sisters. And I think my mum was absolutely beautiful. My dad did too. He thought she was like the actress Merle Oberon, very fine featured. But she was known as the plain one and the clever one. She was clever, but she was at school during the war Um, But she did her school certificate, which you commonly did at 16. She did it at 14, but then never got that chance to kind of take that further because the war got in the way. So she uh, worked um, as a telephonist at what was Hawker Sidley that made aircraft um, in, I think that must have been near Chester, just over the border from North Wales. And my dad referred to her as the girl with the dark brown voice. That was her Signature. she had this sort of velvety voice, but she had much more than that. She had a voice, so she sang beautifully. Um, she was, um, I think, a coloratura soprano, really high-pitched um, soprano. And during the war, she sang, uh, you know, in, at church, and also in sort of village hall settings and made people feel good. And when I was a child, we'd go around the town, it's called Hollywell in North Wales, and people would stop and say, oh, I heard your mother, I heard your mother singing <laughs> during the war. And there was a lot of this commentary and she got quieter and quieter and didn't sing as much and completely stopped when my dad died. It just like, it just shut her off, this... And I'll I'll talk more about that, that kind of shutting off of creative things when you lose somebody. But she singing was synonymous with dad because he played the piano. And when they met, he was playing the piano. She was uh, an old time dancing um, session in our town hall. And apparently he twinkled at her from the piano. Um, Not a euphemism. (laughs) He just actually smiled at her. And um, but she was a singer, and I accompanied her to um, Catholic mass. Yeah. And my memories of her singing Latin or, in this case, Greek. She sang Kyrie Leson, and she we were stood in the gods looking. But we had the big organ behind us. Someone was playing. She was sang singing Kyrie Leson, like an angel. To me, she was like an angel. And when as I was growing up, she. Would sing with me in the kitchen. She taught me how to sing other prayers like um, Ave Maria or Parnas Angelicus, Bread of Heaven. And I can't. It, I find it quite hard to hear those songs now. If they stop me in my tracks if I hear them. Come on, anywhere, anyone singing them in any way, just makes me go. <gasps> especially Ave Maria, because um, it's just so part um, of, of of her whole life and her personality but um talking about her being she was extraordinary in that way in her academic life and her singing but my dad who was 10 years older than her which was quite extraordinary at the time and they almost didn't get together because she was catholic and he was united reformed welsh chapel um but they they got together and um he whisked her away he got a job in Kenya in in, well they were colonials so he he along with a lot of people from my North Welsh town got taken out to run various things in Kenya and my dad was part of the post office and telecommunications and my mum worked at the um, American consulate in Nairobi which was bombed actually quite a a while after she died I was thankful it happened after she died but she that's where she worked Um, and she took her my sister who was about two at the time out to Kenya it was very unusual and she was over the local papers you know the family when they returned 10 years later they the children saw snow for the first time my mum was still singing she sang on the ship on the way out there the ship on the way back all the pictures I have of her are singing and then there is there are these amazing photos of her um wearing proper sort of 50s Betty Draper dresses on board ship singing or in the um, my mum and dad um, were part of the Kenyan Operatic Society my dad ran the orchestra and my mum was in the in the troupe and there's a picture of her in a musical that I've never heard of since um, called Grab Me a Gondola <laughs> and she's wearing a, a, a fur bikini and heels singing belting something out obviously um and I love it I just that the fur bikini (laughs) the body confidence
0: (laughs) oh my gosh so vibrant Lisa you paint such a vibrant picture of your mum how absolutely wonderful Emily looks delighted by the um, fur bikini (laughs) (laughs) just like what a
1: dreamboat like I can't quite get over that and the dark brown voice and then the soprano like yeah I'm just immersing myself in Elizabeth, Pamela, Mary. She's she was very glamorous, and she was known to be when
2: they got back from Kenya. My I think my mum had, you know, quite ambitions for herself. They bought a big house, um, in the town, and um, she, my dad, opened a newsagent shop, and I think she she wanted to live that life that she got used to in Kenya, with someone to come and clean the house, and people just didn't do that then. Um, And she had she bought the best dresses from some from a boutique in town. And she was just well known as being best dressed. And my one of my fondest memories was at primary school. So proud of her. She would turn up in this midnight blue maxi and then get the the car that is and then get out of the car wearing. She had purple suede heeled boots, which I would kill for now uh, with big buttons down the side. This is in the 70s. And um, she was a really good knitter and she knitted. She was very um, experimental with the knitting and she had this huge coat, which would it, her outfit would look great now. A big, long cardigan coat knitted with rows of different types of trees. So it was rows of trees, all in different colours with borders. And I mean, perhaps that sounds awful, but it was gorgeous. And she'd have her hair done on the Friday turn up in the boots and the thing and I now I think she was totally working that whole mum at the school gate thing <laughs> I was just so so proud of her and doing it in the 70s I was like that's my mum and she smelt good and she just always looked good and I, I I took when I was a publisher in my corporate career I was definitely channeling that glamorous vibe myself definitely picked up from her
1: Sounds gorgeous to me. Uh my mum, uh Trude's was big into knitting, the more experimental the better. And uh it almost became her kind of uniform that she had this like rainbow pinwheel kind of from the back sort of spreading out into a sort of shawl all around. Sounds wonderful. Like and I mean I don't know how I would behave if I saw someone step out of a giant car like that now, but I think I would know that they were the boss. <laughs> <And I first laughs> <ended up laughs>
2: I think she was sort of by by the time they were back from Kenya and with the shop and everything there was sort of minor town celebrities as much as you can be in a Welsh town my dad was the local councillor and a chairman and they were part of the rotary and the inner wheel and um you know my mum was part of the sort of women's version of all of that so they were quite kind of quite um they held a social standing but they did it my dad sort of started off doing the fireworks in the town and the Christmas tree in the town. And my mum would be there sort of with me pressing various buttons to light things. And there was a lot of ritual around that. And she, I think she enjoyed being that glamorous wife, but I think she also, I think over time I realised, and now in retrospect, I totally think she would have loved to have followed an academic Um, career different sort of career and then she did that for while she was alive through me I definitely felt like it was she sort of her life kind of stopped being extraordinary um, after dad died partly because she just stopped trying to make it extraordinary Um, and but I started to do my thing and she started following that closely so I always felt like everything I achieved was for both of us But for her, really. And I still think that I still think everything is for her.
1: Oh, absolutely. You've you've already given us such a strong sense of what an absolute force your mum was. But I was wondering if you could tell us a story about her. And this doesn't have to be like the one story about your mum, because we know there are so many stories about our mums. It can just be one that you feel like telling right now. It can be silly. It can be heartfelt. It can be whatever it is, just the one you feel most uh like telling right now
2: well I think that I often tell the story because my mum ended up sadly getting dementia um and she passed away when she was 71 from complications through that but um she through I'd say through about the sort of eight years or ten years before that in retrospect I realized the signs were there but it it, it did lead to a lot of kind of hilarious kind of um, things that we all laughed at um, she would say something that sounded a little bit mad and at the time I cringe now because I'd say mom don't say that you sound mad but you know it must have been the early stages of dementia but anyway as time went on and the dementia got worse and she got taken in for testing at the Bodlewithan hospital in St Asaph in North Wales um, it, it, it was the 90s and the TV was on in her common room where she was and me and my sister went in my sister was sort of leading the charge of the 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 care and what we were gonna where we were gonna put her and all of that kind of thing and um Davina McCall was on tv doing big brother and my mum turned to the tv and went oh that that's you (laughs) and the only thing I've got in common with Davina is um I had long dark chestnut hair um and I think I might have had a bob at the time as well, and maybe Davina did, but she thought it was me. And one of the things that I learned, what me and my sister both learned with someone with dementia is don't ever gainsay them. Always agree and go along with it. Laugh as they laugh. Um, just go go with it. And as somebody who quite likes uh, tangential conversations. um I I almost quite enjoyed it. So she started saying, "Oh, you're Davina." We've just entered into this whole kind of conversation about how I was how I was how could I be on TV and and here at the time it was actually me and I was saying, "Well, I've pre-recorded it." And <laughs> so she, <laughs> but it was funny. And me and my sister said, "God, it's good to laugh at it." And she laughed at it because. We she had vascular dementia, and with that type of dementia, you come in and out of clarity. So, one minute she'd be thinking I was Davina, and the next minute she'd realize where she was. It was quite cruel in a way. She'd realize where she was and say, Why have you got me in here? and then suddenly retreat back to the person laughing at at Davina. So, she all you had to do was sort of follow that so I'm telling that story because we did laugh at it and it was important to laugh but you know the the kind of cruelty of somebody who was as clever as my mum was she was brilliant with words um annoyingly brilliant you couldn't watch mastermind or university challenge or try and do a crossword my mum and dad used to have crossword parties and she would just nail it straight away and it was so annoying we'd all sit round trying to answer the question on University Challenge. And my mum, sometimes we'd have to actually ask her to shut up because she always knew the answer. But she was obsessed with words, pronunciation, and similar. It's funny that I'm an editor now. Um, but, you know, that's where I get it from. And, um, for, for instance, one of the words she used to say, and maybe this came from her gran- her grandmother, um, she used to talk about this word, coolth Which is the sort of cold version of warmth. Um, And I think of it now. I go outside when it's, you know, springtime and there's a, it's, it's maybe, it's sort of half warm and half cold. Or during, on a hot summer day when you walk under a tree and there's a coolness, she would call that coolth. So she had her own words for things, but she also had her own pronunciation. And to make you laugh again, at school, somehow she told me that muesli was pronounced muesley <laughs> in total seriousness <laughs> like she had her own pronunciation guide um and i went to school and called it muesley and just you know never lived it down and still think of it as muesley it's sort of stuck in there but there was a time you'd be too young to know but there was a time when the bbc went hell for leather on pronunciation and it became a point, it became a joke where sort of um, Reggie Bozenkett or Angela Rippon, the then big news readers, would over-pronounce everything. And I think my mum just got really into saying Lebanon and, you know, really over-enunciating syllables. So uh, (laughs) it makes me laugh now to think of it, because I can hear her say it. I remember going to a a cafe and her suddenly asking for waffles. Where did she get waffles (laughs) from and waffles? But she, it was from her telephone voice, I think. Somehow she went, as many mums do, they go into that posh telephone
0: voice. <laughs> Gosh, <yeah. laughs> there's the telephone voice. I remember, like, the fear of the telephone voice when I'd be, like, being shouted at and being, like, really, really big trouble for something, and then the phone would ring. She'd be hello. <laughs> and you'd be like, and it was so sinister. There was something quite scary about how they could change from the kind of mum voice to the... Um, to the phone voice um yeah Lisa I would love to talk to you now a bit about um what worked and what didn't so obviously you'd experienced grief quite profoundly from the age of 10 when your dad died and then um and then years later when your mum did but and I know that I know that You know, your life has kind of gone in many different directions since stopping drinking was a big part of that and traveling and not living the kind of life that you feel that society was kind of putting on you. And I'd really like to know how that has kind of is part of your grief as well as part of your life.
2: I think that's a really interesting question because there is no doubt that I have shaped and flexed around the absence of parents I have filled that void in other ways by um, fashioning this lifestyle that I say, you know, I'm free. Uh, I, I talk about freedom a lot in my writing. Um, I say I'm free f- from things. And, and maybe like you at Christmas, I sometimes I don't want to be free I want to be part of something and um, but I have fashioned this lifestyle this you know I had this glamorous career go-getting kind of thing and now I'm in this freelance phase of my life where I'm free to do exactly what I want I do so solo traveling I live on my own um I'm in a long distance age gap relationship you know I can't I can't seem to do anything the kind of air quotes normal <laughs> way um but and I, I kind of liken it part of it though is a bit of a kind of like um a defense mechanism if i'm honest you know a bit kind of like you know i'm 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 going to be this person because that's um because i can which is <laughs> was the name of the blog because i can that i started and i felt very kind of like um, strident about this well i can be on my own can't i but i do think a little part a big part of it comes from because there's no safety net there um, of parents there's no safe safety net there now of um husband or of children either there's literally no safety net there's just me so I have kind of almost become um uh was as I say sort of stridently confident in that area but maybe underneath if I'm honest it covers up um a gaping void <laughs>
1: I think that's really, I really appreciate you saying that, Lisa, because I think it's it's rare that anything in like, well, in life, full stop, but in adult life is just one thing. And that's what I'm learning more and more and trying to explain to people that grief is so much more than just being sad about a bereavement. And I think it's great to embrace what you have in life but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be allowed to grieve essentially what you haven't had or what you could have wanted even if you know you're in a really good place um I think that's because I think again um the culture just wants to reduce things you know for women again and again
2: I'm thinking as I was speaking then I have just transported back to moments where I've done that kind of strident solo thing on my wedding day I I was like that because of course you know the missing people at the top table kind of thing I was determined almost as an act of um, self harm, as I write about in my book to be on my own I was wearing a you know a bias cup Backless red satin gown, I was standing on my own in the aisle. The, the Church of Scotland minister said, Are you sorry, are you going in on your own? And I went, yep it's just me. But I was almost like, here I am, you know. So what are you going to say about it? It was a bit kind of challenging like that. I was a bit like that, and I was just determined um to show that you could be on your own. But you know, um, of course, inside. Um, there was the, it was covering up that hollow feeling of no one being there. And my ex-husband had his whole you know, well, he didn't have his whole family. He had his mother and um, sister. And he'd spent the night in the in his you know um, maternal home where he grew up. And I was on my own in a Scottish castle, being scared of the alleged um, grey lady ghost. Yeah because I was in the library room trying to prove something, was trying to prove that I could be as alone as alone could be. It was a bit like the Christmas day thing. I did that to myself to prove something. And I was, what I was doing was I'm, I'm okay. I'm here. My parents aren't here, but I'm here. And it was almost aggressive.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you very kindly gave me a copy of your book, uh, Cheat, Pray, no, Cheat, Play, Live. There we go. Because it's, better than um title of another book that I couldn't get on with anyway um I love how you write (laughs) about your wedding and I bet you looked absolutely incredible like the way that you described the dress as well like fur bikini and red wedding dresses I'm (laughs) all for it but I totally get what you mean because I think um grief and bereavement I've it's definitely put me on the defensive quite a lot and other people don't understand how something that could be a celebration like Christmas or a wedding is actually incredibly hostile. And it's trying to welcome people into that. You write so beautifully. So um, I've had the privilege to read both um, Cheat, Play, Live and Because You Can, which for the benefit of the listener, has been released on the day that we are recording this, which is January the 4th. Yeah. Thank you very much. My guide
2: to, to living without alcohol, which is, it's almost like it, you know, because the cheap Play Live is the story of grief and of com- numbing that pain with alcohol. And then the guidebook is sort of for people who are more interested in that and wanted to see how I actually did it physically. Um, But yeah, r- writing about all of those things, again, really made me, the act of writing, made me just think about how much the grief had led me to, down this path of drinking so much and r- numbing and, you know, ultimately asking the wrong man at, uh, to marry me, I asked him um, whilst I was drinking, <laughs> I asked him. And poor guy, he he um, agreed for some reason. And we just set off down this path. Um, and it was just kind of, I knew it was wrong the whole time, but I still did it. And lots of people have written to me to say, I, you know, I've done that too. Um, but, yeah, writing the book made me look at, through, see that how that initial hurt. It was primarily the losing my dad. But then what had happened in the 90s was the confluence of my mother's increasing dementia and then death alongside me drinking plus the cool girl Ladette culture. So all of those things came in the perfect storm and it it was, and I was in publishing as well. So we were all Bridget Jones. We, you know, our best relationship was with a bottle of Chardonnay and it was, it actually was. Um, So, um, and it's just, I know there's a whole host of us out there of a similar age who've come to this conclusion and have started to face it and started to cut down or give up our drinking.
1: You write so brilliantly And I think what I really respond to in both books is how you use your specificity and your very unique circumstance to then allow it to be even more universal somehow. And that other people can come exactly like you said, like other people saying, I have done exactly the same thing. And I love how the combination of your books um, point out that it's not necessarily being alone is a problem like I'm a big believer in that there is solace and there is loneliness and both of them are being on your own but so much of it is about finding a different kind of connection which is so difficult when the connections you really want are taken away from you and it sounds to me like similar like you being by yourself is simultaneously what did and didn't help um and I was wanting to come back to when you were talking about creativity there you were speaking about um, your mum singing and how that stopped when your dad died. And I wondered how you felt creatively when she died and how creativity has the role that it's played in your grief. It was so... When looking back,
2: I, I only realised again um, a few years ago what had happened because one of the things I did during the writing process was go through the patterns, look for the patterns in what had happened. And I could see these repeating things. And I thought about mum largely stopping singing when dad died. We'd catch her every now and again, singing something in the kitchen, a a musical, something from, she liked Oklahoma or Sound of Music. um, And she'd shut up if anyone came near, because we'd all be you know, desperate of her to sing something. And it was was later that I realised that must have been her grief. She just couldn't go there. There was no joy in her heart. I, when I went to university, spurred on by her, I go to university because I'd been um, doing ballet. I'd been teaching ballet. didn't go to university straight away. I was teaching ballet between 18 and 22. I thought that's what I was going to do. Stay in Hollywell, teach ballet, done. And something just lit up inside me. A fire came from nowhere. The cogs started turning and I got this massive urge to go to uni. And I went to Roehampton to study dance and you had to do dance with another subject. So I chose English and um, I went to Roehampton and, and, you know, carried on my passion for dance. And my dad was the one that had taken me to dance classes, but my mum was the one who, bless her, had to take me to all the performances, scrape my hair into a bun, you know, pay for all the costumes and everything. It was was a joyful time, but I must have been a nightmare as a teenage ballet dancer. But anyway, I go off to university. It was Honestly, that's a whole other story, the grief of leaving that home at 22. It was like having limbs cut off. It was awful. But I've, I got into my stride and I did contemporary dance then. It was very freeing. It was, you know, you didn't have to wear point shoes. You could throw yourself around and be expressive. But what happened was I was um, much better at English um, than I realised. And I ended up majoring in that and going down a publishing route, blah, blah, blah. But I carried on with the dancing. And in the 90s, I moved to Brighton and... Um, started doing class. I was doing advanced classes. I was still, there's a, the Rohanton dance course was brilliant. So I was quite a a good standard. And I I used to do advanced dance classes with people like Wayne McGregor, who's now the resident choreographer at Royal Ballet. Um, Did classes with him in Brighton. And it was only years later that I realised I stopped dancing when my mum died. I didn't even notice myself doing it. When she died it just went and it was only years later i turned around and i thought i've stopped dancing just like mum stopped singing and i think that i was i did so much for her that and that was just the other the dancing was almost for her and for him and with both of them switched off my light went off and i just didn't have it i haven't done it since I tried to go back to a couple of classes and it just wasn't there. I've since embraced yoga in a different way, but not in the same way. It was, oh, I still go and watch ballet. That's one of my favourite things to do um, and contemporary dance, but I just haven't been able to dance. So I think there's something interesting there, isn't there, it's about losing the will to create something or express as part of grief?
0: Oh, for sure. There's so much. What you say, Lisa, about like that that's coming to my mind about the kind of like inner child in you and, and the kind of defiance. And, and that's something that I feel really strongly. Um, you know, that that kind of that that hard-edged teenager defiance almost. No, I won't do that. No, I won't, you know. Um, and, and that's really, really resonating for me because I still find myself, you know, when I miss my mum and really having parents the most in the traditional sense is when I'm feeling my most frustrated. And that so much of kind of what you've said about, um, you know, just just really, really resonates with that. Um what haven't we asked you Lisa that you would like to talk about it could be anything from the grief from the from your grief to your writing to the way that you handle relationships now is there anything that you feel would be beneficial for anyone listening to hear
2: I thought um, one of the things I was going to talk about was the fact that I couldn't cry for for ages when it happened and it was almost embarrassing. It was in embarrassing levels of not crying. And um I it had been a tricky, uh, well, quite apart from the grief itself and the event itself, it had it, it been a um a difficult time. One of the things that went wrong with the whole scenario was that my then he was my then boyfriend and was. Soon to be my um, my husband and now ex husband, he had pretended to be ill when my mum died. We were with friends, and in, to avoid comforting me, he had pretended um, to be ill with a stomach problem, which miraculously went away when we had to drive home. And that that was so deeply hurtful. I think I packed away. I don't know I think I just packed away my emotion it was like I'd lost a pet and actually not even that you know there wasn't enough support there even for that anyway um I packed it all away and we went as you may know you know when you lose somebody there's this whole administration thing that comes in that almost comes in as a a distraction paperwork you have to do stuff to get signed, bank accounts, selling houses, you know. Clear, and and one of the things was p- clearing my mum's very, very sad house. It was just such a, a sad little house because she kind of just lived her her worst years there and just surrounded herself with big piles of newspapers. And that's what we were sort of clearing out. It was like a little hermit's cave in there. But anyway, my ex-husband came with me to help and my sister to clear out that house and um through all that time I just didn't let any massive crying bouts happen they weren't there just didn't the water table was low I was like where is it am I I'm a cold-hearted bitch and I thought that people might be looking at me weirdly you know why isn't she more upset so I we cleared the house and so we're obsessed with practical things even at the funeral I I did the defiant teenager thing I stood up and I thought I'm gonna read I'm going to listen to Parnis Angelicus, I'm going to have Pavarotti singing Ave Maria, the most emotional thing you could possibly have. And I'm going to read a really emotional poem and I'm going to show everyone I can do that. You know, I can be strong kind of thing. So I was doing Defiant Child. Um, And it, it still, the waters didn't break. And we all, you know, there was a kind of wake afterwards where we all met, you know, and I thought, why don't we do this? Why didn't we do this while she was still alive? Because, you know, she would have loved this because we just people kept away from her. because She was she was pushing people away. And then the dementia, just people can't handle it. And that's kind of fairly understandable. Anyway, just after that wake, we my ex-husband took me to the supermarket to pick up a few things we were staying in a sort of um, B&B in North Wales nearby and I ran in and it was just it was like a gateway or something like cheap and cheerful but my mum was there almost every day and I saw a woman with a basket with a couple of cans in it and it was that thing like the volunteering Where I just saw her my mum with what she used to buy you know one thing of yoghurt, a tub of yoghurt, a can of tuna, some biscuits, just like a tiny thing and that was the thing. It just triggered an absolute tsunami in the middle of Gateway in in Hollywell and I, you know, ran out to the car. Even then, I did let it out but I didn't let it fully out and I can still remember sort of almost choking it choking it back and I wish I'd just given it absolutely massive vent I have since but I think people expect you to be all you know um wailing at the funeral and I just wasn't I was being strong defiant solo you know you're doing this to me again you know the universe um but I'm going to stand here and show me you know I'm gonna I'm gonna withstand it again and it happened again just not long after that when my ex-husband's father died. Um, so it was just like a sort of parental death roller coaster. Um, and I was just determined to show that I could ride it. I suppose a terrible analogy, but anyway.
1: No, no, it's a great analogy, <laughs> honestly. And I think Lisa, thank hmm. you for sharing that because that's gonna help so many people because the number of people who uh come to me because I am now, you know, um by partly by choice, partly by mainly by circumstance uh someone that people come to now in sort of bereavement and and grief and the number of them who say like I can't cry and they do think something's fundamentally broken with them and I'm like no it's your grief and it happens how it happens for you and I think I could talk about trauma for hours we should probably start a side podcast Anna but I, I, I think people don't necessarily understand or appreciate or give themselves the compassion to understand particularly with such a traumatic dying as your mum had and when I read that passage in the book about your ex-husband I wanted to tear the page in half and uh I was also reading on a pdf so I was going to do something really horrible to my laptop that was how strongly I but people can't deal with it like the compassion is that we still don't know how to deal with it That's one of the the things I was going to say about what, you know, you asked
2: me about what worked and didn't work. You know, what didn't work was somebody pretending to be ill um, when my dad died. And I've noticed a pattern of that when good or bad things happen in my life. There's a pattern where some people pretend to be ill to get away from it. They do. Um, It's a thing. It must be a human thing. But what did work was those people like us that kind of almost loom out of the woodwork, the unexpected supportive friend who comes out of nowhere to say, oh, I lost my whoever last year and, you know, I just want you to know that blah, blah, blah. And I've since found, and I'm sure you have, that really it's only the people that have experienced it that do loom out of the woodwork, thank God. And I always make a massive point of it, you know, going over to the person... um, and, you know, I I can't stand phone calls, but I always make a phone call because I remember that day, you know, or a couple of days after, where a couple of friends actually properly called me in a way they never did before, but it just really meant a lot. I picked up the phone, you know, whereas now I've <laughs> run a mile, but um, I appreciated the call. Um, and that was from people actually who hadn't lost anyone, but I remember going back to work very quickly, And then the the woodwork people came out, the ones that had lost people and they knew it is like a sort of secret club, isn't it?
0: It's that's exactly it. It's the secret club that you don't want to be in, but you're in. And then you're very grateful that exists, Um, which feels like quite a nice note for us to end on today, Lisa. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful first guest of the year. Um, I feel 100% different from how I did just coming on. I didn't realise how kind of pent up I'd been feeling over the last few weeks. And even just talking to you two today has even made me feel so much better and more human. So thank you for that. And I'm sure your honesty and rawness will definitely help a lot of our listeners. So thank you very, very much. How can we... Get copies of your books, Lisa, about Cheap Play Live and your book on sobriety. Okay, well,
2: um, Cheap Play Live, my memoir, One Woman's Journey to Fearlessness and Freedom, um, is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback form. You can also order the paperback from online or any bookshop because I'm set up for that. Um, Because You Can is purely on Amazon at the moment, so it's a guidebook to living without alcohol and it's available as ebook at $1.99 and paperback for 499. And as you say, they look it launched today, so it's a great day for me. Thank you
1: so much Lisa.
0: Thank you Thank you for listening to the Mother of All losses podcast.
1: This episode was produced by Chris Thorburn. Music by Kane Aris, who can be found at Atom Collection 2 on Soundcloud. With huge thanks to Hannah Trevathen.
0: If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on themotherofalllosses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.